It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In the summer of 2018, news broke that the Trump administration was enforcing draconian immigration measures at the Mexican border. In an effort to deter migrants from entering the country without permission, officials were separating parents from their children and taking the kids to detention facilities miles away. When they said, there are no cages inside the facility, the only thing I knew how to say was, they're cages. There's no other way to describe cages. MSNBC reporter Jacob Soboroff was given a tour of a former Walmart in Brownsville, Texas, that was housing 1,100 young boys. Afterward, he shared his raw shock and horror at what he had seen with the American public in a live TV interview, and he's stayed with the story ever since. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Consider joining us in person this June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Passes are on sale at aspenideas.org. The family separation policy is ended, but the story is far from over. At the time of this conversation, about a thousand kids still hadn't been reunited with their parents, and even the families that have come back together are dealing with deep trauma from the experience. NPR host Mary Louise Kelly interviews Soboroff on stage at the festival about his experience, which he describes in his 2020 book, Separated. Soboroff explains how this unthinkable policy became a reality and shares some of what he learned about the toll it took on the families that suffered. Here's Kelly. Reading your book about the border and immigration, which with everything else going on these last few months between Ukraine and Roe v. Wade and mass shootings and so many other things that demand our attention, has not always been front page. No, certainly not. But remains as important as it ever was. It sure does. Yeah. Um, and continues to impact people's lives in really profound, enduring, and challenging ways. So with that, let me kick off. I, um, I want to talk a bit about the book and what you found. I want to bring us up to kind of where we are now, and then we're definitely going to save time for questions. I, I think maybe as good a place to start as any is where you start the book, which was four years ago almost exactly. That's right. Summer, June 2018. Yep. And you have just flown into Brownsville, Texas. Why? What were you there to see? Um, I'll, I'll tell you this whole story, but the first thing I want to say is it's so nice to meet you, and it's so nice to be here with you. And I'm so sorry to all of you that we have to have such a depressing conversation over lunch. <laughs> um, but, I, but I really do believe, uh, as I wrote about in the book, that this was one of the most shameful chapters in modern American history. And, uh, and I'm talking specifically about uh, the separation of, of almost 6,000 kids from their parents deliberately by the Trump administration uh, in an effort to deter other families uh, from coming. And this is something, you know, now, four years hindsight, we know that Physicians for Human Rights, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winning group called Torture, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics called it uh, government-sanctioned child abuse. Uh, and I just think that that bears repeating because today, of the 5,600 plus, and the truth of the matter is we don't know how many kids were separated by the Trump administration. Um, of, that, of that group, over 1,000 of them remain separated from their parents uh, today. And so I'm sure we'll get into all of that. But, but the, and it gives me the chills just to think about. Um, I, almost exactly four years ago today, uh, I landed in Brownsville, Texas, uh, admittedly just way in over my head. And, 
The destination was a, a former Walmart, uh, 250,000 square feet, uh, known as Casa Padre, and it was the largest shelter for unaccompanied children uh, in the United States uh, at the time. And inside that shelter uh, were 1,100 boys ages 10 to 17, the majority of which had been taken away from their parents as part of uh, what the Trump administration and Attorney General Jeff Sessions called the zero tolerance policy, but what I think all of us uh, came to know as the family separation policy. Yeah. Uh, and so just when I went in, I'm a television reporter, and I had never been in a situation like this before. Um, no cameras, uh, no audio recording. I grabbed a, uh, I went to Walmart. I grabbed a, a little blue notebook. An open Walmart. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Walgreens, I should say. Okay. And uh, I grabbed a little, little blue notebook, and I grabbed uh, some yellow Gatorade, which I drink when I'm nervous because it calms my nerves, and, um, and some dry shampoo because I'm a vain television reporter, and I headed to that former Walmart. And, and inside, uh, I, saw, um, I saw something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life, which was what the separation policy looked like in practice, and that was the beginning of a journey for me. And, just, and what does it look like? I mean, just paint me a picture. I have two teenage boys. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what, you said 1,100? 1,100. 10 to 17-year-old boys packed into a, a shutdown Walmart. Yep. What that looks like, what that feels like, what that sounds like? It, it looks like uh, an entire world um, on the inside of a former Walmart. Um, barbershop, uh, school, the kids were watching Moana in a loading dock uh, of the former Walmart that had been converted into a movie theater. Uh, there's a cafeteria. Um, and, and most importantly, I think there were bedrooms that were, uh, kids were co-located in these bedrooms. The licensed amount of children that were supposed to be in each bedroom was four. They had five beds in each room because the separation policy had overwhelmed uh, this facility. And that that, I mean, I spent a lot of time inside this facility that day, about an hour, and one of the program officers from Southwest Key, the nonprofit that was running the shelter, said to me, uh, smile at these kids. Uh, they feel like animals in cages being looked at. And that's, that's because we, a group of journalists, have been invited inside by a, a woman named Katie Waldman, who's today Katie Miller, Stephen Miller's wife. At the time, um, almost unbelievably, they were dating as a whole side story, and fell in love during the family separation policy. She was at Department of Homeland Security? That's right. She was Kirsten Nielsen, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, <clears throat> spokesperson. And it was, um, it was shocking. And I, I, so we did this whole tour. Um, it was a, incredibly uh, eerie. I'd never seen anything like it. And I came outside in an in a eight-minute eight or so live shot with my colleague Chris Hayes on MSNBC. I described it the only way I knew how, which was I had been inside uh, state prisons, I've been inside county prisons. These children are in what is nominally a shelter, yeah, but effectively a shelter. they're Did incarcerated. They no, yeah. no. I mean, they said they could leave, but when they leave, <clears throat> the police come and pick them up and they bring them back to the facility. These children were allowed outside, Mary Louise, only two or three hours a day, depending on the day of the week. And we can have a whole conversation about the way that migrant children are treated in this country, um, but on top of all of that, these children weren't supposed to be there. Yeah. They were supposed to come into the country, declare asylum with their parents, and go through the American immigration system. But the Trump administration, under the auspices of, we're going to end what's known as catch and release, which is sort of a dark euphemism for waiting out your immigration case, your court case, 
in the interior of the country, which is not abnormal or unusual, it's been done for administration after administration, Republican and Democrat, they decide to separate the families in order to punish them to try to scare others from coming. When you say you weren't prepared for it, I mean, I get that on one level, because yep. what could prepare you for this? Um, the family separation policy had been widely reported on. It had been well documented. It was actually shut down that summer, right? Um, when you reached out to administration officials to try to understand what you were seeing, what did they say? How did they explain why America was doing this? I think most famously at the White House podium, maybe even on this day four years ago, Kirsten Nielsen came out, and I'm sure everybody remembers, she said, there is no family separation policy, period. She echoed it in a tweet that she put out um, on the same day. And they were playing, uh, a generous way to describe it would be some verbal gymnastics. Uh, lying would be uh, perhaps the more critical way to describe it. Since there was a policy and families were being separated. That's right, and we can, I mean, we can get into the details, but, but basically, the Attorney General put into place a, a policy from the DOJ to prosecute all the parents coming through, but it was Secretary Nielsen herself that had to sign a memo, a decision memo, which she had been warned, a report in the book, uh, could very well lead to unconstitutional separations of families in order for all those families to be sent to the Justice yeah. Department to be charged. So what they said was, there's no family separation policy. We have a zero tolerance immigration prosecution policy. Um, I guess it's just a matter of what you want to call it because it was torture in the eyes of a Nobel Peace Prize winning NGO. Just to take this from the policy level to the human level, yeah. um, you have a number of characters who we meet as the book unfolds, but there's a, one father and son, yep. um, Juan and Jose, That's not right. their real names, um, who we meet at the beginning and then end. Would you tell us just a little bit who they were and how you got to know them? Just wonderful people is the, is the, is the simple way to describe them. Um, I met... Um, I met the father inside immigration detention after they had been separated from one another in Adelanto, California. I didn't know this. I mean, just to go back for a second, when I say, you know, as I say in the book, I was an unlikely eyewitness, you're right. This had been reported on by Caitlin Dickerson at the New York Times, by my colleague Julia Ainsley when she was at Reuters. She broke the story, and then she came uh, to NBC. Lomi Creel from the Houston Chronicle had reported on this. All of these details. Um, John Burnett from NPR. Yes, exactly. Yep. He had a very, very consequential interview uh, with uh, uh, John, John Kelly. Kelly at the mm -hmm. time. And John Kelly had basically admitted, yeah, we're considering this policy. Yeah. After that interview, they said, we're going to shut it down. We're not going to do it. There was too much outrage and too much controversy. And I was working on a Dateline hour for Dateline NBC about the realities of life along the border. Remember, Donald Trump didn't come out as president and say, we're going to have a family separation policy. He said, we're going to end catch and release. We're going to stop MS-13 from coming across the border. We're going to get all these drugs that are coming in in between the ports of entry. And we are going to remake the border as we know it. Those are things that I was focused on. I was sort of uh, naive, is the truth. I thought, I'm going to fact check. I'm going to go out there and fact check Donald Trump. Drugs aren't coming between um, ports of entry. MS-13 is a handful of people coming in amongst hundreds of thousands uh, every year. Those are the things that, that I was focused on. And when the separation crisis sort of exploded, I was in the middle of covering, I had done a Dateline interview with Secretary Nielsen. And that's how I met um, Katie Miller. And that's why I was invited inside these centers. Yeah. And so that led me to stick with the story. I went inside the Ursula Central Processing Station where the majority of the separations happened. She was the one herself to call it the epicenter of the policy. And I followed families throughout the process. And it turns out, another thing I had no idea about is that one of the largest immigration detention centers in the nation is two hours drive from where I live in Los Angeles, in Adelanto, California. 
So this is Juan and Jose. That's, that's right. where you met them. Okay. And that's where I met Juan. That's where I met Juan. And inside that center, he told me he had been separated for five months from his son, and he didn't know if he was ever going to get him back. How old was his son? His son was about 14 or 15 at the time. Incidentally, his son just graduated from a technical high school. They're living in the Washington, D.C. area. They were reunited after those five months. Um, but he, unlike the 1,000 families that remain separated, um, was lucky to have an immigration attorney, was lucky to have someone represent him. And as I, as I read in the book, I think, you know, I've learned that these immigration attorneys, these activists, I mean, they are as important as any first responder on any front line. They are going in to literally stop scenarios that will leave these families with trauma for a lifetime, and, and indeed they have. And, and yeah. so they were separated. They came in San Luis, Arizona at the, at the beginning of the policy. They were taken from one another, separated on a border patrol station. Um, the son went to a, a center not far from where I was in Harlingen, Texas, and the father was shipped all the way in shackles uh, to Adelanto. And so, as I said, they didn't see each other for five months. They could only communicate when they had the opportunity and were connected by the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of Refugee Resettlement. But the big travesty here is, as you guys might remember from the time, they didn't keep records about the separation policy. They didn't know where children were. Uh, they knew where all the children were, but they didn't know how to connect the children with the parents. And so- Can I just stop you? That, yeah. that remains one of the most mind-boggling things. Sickening, I, and, and, and I say that as how someone you, who should be- How yeah. do you not know where they are? I mean, they can, airlines keep track of our luggage. That's how right. do you take a human being, incarcerate them, which is kind of what's happening here, and then not have a record of it? Because the system wasn't designed to separate children. And there are people who, in the book I write, knew in advance and warned the administration that the technological um, capacity wasn't there to connect children and parents in the system that the Border Patrol used. They weren't ready to do Let's say this was a good idea to do, and it certainly wasn't. They, did, they weren't ready for it in the first place. And so as they went through with this, they went through with it under immense, immense pressure from the Trump administration, from Stephen Miller. I later learned, and I write in the afterward in the paperback edition, that Stephen Miller on May 3rd, 2018, held a meeting in the White House Situation Room, where normally life-saving operations are conducted, a cabinet-level meeting where he asked the officials in the room to have a show of hands whether or not they wanted to go forward with the separation policy, and a sea of hands went up, as it was described to me. <laughs> and that was the beginning of the day before Secretary Nielsen signed this memo to effectuate the policy that resulted in not only Juan and Jose being separated from one another, but, but everybody else. There, as you document, clearly were true believers in the Trump administration who believed this was the right way to go, that the cost, whatever the cost to the human beings being impacted, was outweighed by the need to better police our borders, stop MS-13, whatever yep. the reason was. To what extent, as you reported, did you find people trying to resist this, trying to push back, saying, hang on, what the hell are we doing? Commander Jonathan White is, as I would say, a main character uh, in the book. He was a career civil servant um, within the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is within the, the Office of Health and Human Services, the Department of Health and Human Services in the federal government. He and other colleagues within HHS whose whole mission is to have the best interests of the children at heart, any social worker will tell you that that's, that's, that's their mission. Any child welfare professional will tell you that that's their mission, had gotten wind of the policy because of interviews on NPR, because of the interview Wolf Blitzer did with John Kelly on CNN. Uh, and the data showed 
that there, there was a pilot program taking place. Uh, all this, most of this happened in 2018, but in 2017 in the El Paso sector, there was a pilot program run by the Border Patrol Chief Aaron Hall down there, and HHS was getting data that showed that children couldn't find their parents uh, in or shelters. It was very unusual. In the Obama administration, there had been a limited number of separations. It had been considered on a policy level to do, to do something like this, to stop people from coming. And I'll get into the reason this was able to happen like that is because of decades of deterrence-based policy in Republican and Democratic administrations. Nobody's innocent in this, but the Trump administration is the only one to ever go forward with it. Jonathan White and his colleagues in HHS saw on a list kept by a guy named Jim De La Cruz, a mm -hmm. federal field specialist, that there were hundreds of families separated uh, and kids in or or custody that couldn't find their parents. That list leaked to the New York Times, as a matter of fact. He went to Kevin McAleenan, who was the head of CBP at the time. Uh, concerns were raised up and down within DHS by the officials on the Health and Human Services side that not only would this become the greatest human rights catastrophe of my lifetime, as one official said to me for the book, um, but that there would be incredible logistical issues with being able to house separated children and being able to put them back together. Yeah. And so within HHS, there was this furious effort to stop this from happening, but Trump political appointees almost at every turn, many of them ended up leading the COVID response, you won't be uh, surprised to find out, um, but look how well back. that went. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so, I mean, there's a very famous story <laughs> that when Caitlin Dickerson's report in the New York Times in April of 2018 came out saying this list that Jim De La Cruz had kept about separated children, an informal list on a spreadsheet, like an Excel spreadsheet, basically, when that list leaked to her and was published in the New York Times, Scott Lloyd, the head of ORR, a political appointee from the... Trump administration had a series of meetings in which the message was, it's the chapter five in the book, get rid of the list. The thought- Not, not get rid of the policy. Get thank rid you, of the that's list. what I was gonna say. The, the thought there wasn't, let's stop, let's listen to the career officials within HHS and think about how to slow this down, to stop it, to provide care and yeah. custody of the children that they need, but to to make sure that this list wasn't out there so that it didn't create a PR crisis for the Trump administration. You also described the very interesting role that Melania seemed to be playing. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in your book where they're uh, on the presidential helicopter. Yeah. This is, I believe, after the policy had That's been right. shut down. Uh -huh. It's supposed to have gone away. And Trump and Kirsten Nielsen, his Homeland Security chief, are arguing because Trump's saying we got to bring this thing back because the immigration numbers were spiking again of That's people right. crossing the border and Melania steps in said we can't do she said we can't do that and and you know obviously as you know you know I think when you talk to sources everybody wants to be portrayed in the best light sure. um, let's remember that Melania Trump went down to the border at the height of this wearing that jacket that said I don't really care do you um, Stephanie Grisham wrote about it in her book and and what the intentionality of it was, you know, I can't tell you what Melania Trump was thinking, I can't tell you, but what I can tell you is after this policy was ended on June 20th, 21st, 2018 by executive order amidst just an incredible um, swell of public uh, anger against the policy and the images that everybody saw in the news. I mean, by the way, the president, President Trump himself said he didn't like the sights and the sounds that he was seeing coming out of the news media. I don't think had this not blown up, 
not because of me, but because of the American people who responded to the coverage by all the journalists who were down there, this very well could have continued. And there was pressure on Kirsten Nielsen in 2019, as, as and I read about this um, in the book. They were, she and, and Trump were flying to, uh, I guess it was a tornado or a hurricane, um, to do damage recovery. And the, the suggestion was we gotta bring that policy back. And Melania interjected, according to people who were on the flight, and said, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. And Trump moved on. But I don't think there's any guarantee uh, at all that there are safeguards in place for this to not happen again. Um, and you know, the Biden administration has made it a big priority. I really want to underscore this. The Biden administration made a big priority to reunite the remaining families who remain separated. And there's a task force within the Department of Homeland Security run by Michelle Branet, who's a, just a wonderful person and also a former NGO um, uh, leader, CEO of the Women's um, Refugee Center, who's running this reunification effort. And Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security, is in charge of it uh, because he's the, the Secretary of the Department. Yeah. But the, but the Biden administration is fighting cases in federal court today, as you and I are sitting here talking, to compensate these families for the trauma that they endured. Um, the Biden administration and the president himself made a promise during the campaign, not only that he thought that he believed the policy was criminal, and there, to date there's been no public announcement of an investigation to the people who were involved in this policy, not President Trump, not Stephen Miller, not the secretaries of the departments who were involved, nor the operators on the front lines, um, but they're fighting any sort of restitution for these families as well after, in sort of, I think it was a very political leak, uh, there was word that they could receive hundreds of thousands of dollars in compensation for what they went through. Yeah. And how do you think about, you said the Biden administration promised to reunite the kids who were still not back with their parents. But here we are, what, a year and a half into the Biden administration, yeah. and there's still a thousand kids who haven't been reunited. Is that lack of determined effort? Is that that they're just, there's, the logistical challenges are so vast? No, what? I think it's the latter. And I think, you know, credit where credit is due, this is a Herculean effort to go find, track down, and convince families who were separate and tortured, in the words of the Physician for Human Rights, by the US government to trust the US government to say, hey, come with us. We'll bring you back to the US, and we're going to put you back with your kid who's likely living with a neighbor or a family member or a cousin, and hasn't, you haven't seen one another now in yeah. nearly four years. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of terror. Uh, there's a lot of terror from these families. Um, they have people on the ground literally going door to door in some cases in Central America, trying to track down and find these families in order to present them with the opportunity to come back to the United States. And then there's the issue of the Biden administration has offered them 36 months humanitarian parole, uh, no guarantee that they'll be able to stay here. So some of them very well may end up being sent out of the country again, uh, should Congress not act and say, we're gonna protect these families. Yeah. Um, and, and it all is taking place within the larger conversation, political conversation about immigration, um, which, is, which, is, which is toxic, I think is fair to say. Uh, and, and so often, as I learned myself in covering this topic, are not based in the realities on the ground of, of what's happening. I'm gonna open it in a few minutes to your questions, so start thinking of them. Uh, if you wanna ask one, kind of catch my eye and I'll make sure that a microphone gets to you in a couple of minutes. But I, I want one more as you'll figure out what you wanna ask, which is uh, 
the, how you cover this. I mean, as reporters, our opinions are not supposed to come into yeah. the reporting. It's not supposed to matter. As humans, I imagine it's, Im it's impossible to cover a story about the human rights of children yeah. and not just feel shaken to your core. How did you navigate that? With the support of, my, of the brass at NBC, actually. Hmm. Um, I was very, very nervous about it. And I was very, very deeply affected by uh, the people I met uh, and what I saw there uh, and the prospect of, of, of just this uncertain future for all of these families. I was a dad. I have a six-year-old now and a two-year-old. But I was a dad of a two-year-old. My six-year-old was two then, little boy. Um, and that was all I could think of. Um, it makes me sick, honestly, to think about it still to this day. As with any story, when you see a, children, a child who's in crisis, I did a panel here uh, with a, the Sesame Street uh, workshop. Who I was in Ukraine uh, two or three months ago, covering the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, I've been in Guatemala. I've been in Haiti. To see children uh, in crisis, children in trauma, um, there really is no way to describe it. And to put on top of that, the fact that these kids have been placed into this crisis deliberately and intentionally by the administration was extremely hard. But I got a call from Phil Griffin, who was the, the president of MSNBC at the time, that night when I did the Chris Hayes show. And he said, listen, man, um, we're sending in reinforcements. We're going to send additional uh, correspondents and reporters from NBC down there to back you up. But the other thing he said was, just keep doing what you're doing. And there was no, hey, go out there and slam the Trump administration. Um, but how do you think about that when you're questioning, when you're seeing something that sickens you, and yeah. then you're questioning the people who have made this thing happen? For me, it's always about facts on the ground, uh, and it always has been uh, as a reporter, whether I was covering elections when I first started here in 2016, um, or covering this family separation crisis. And for me, I based everything that I talked about in what I was seeing with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. And so when they said there are no cages inside the facility, the only thing I knew how to say was they're cages. There's no other way to describe cages. Just like I said, in the, in the other facility, in the Casa Padre, the Walmart, um, these kids were effectively incarcerated because they were. It might not be the terminology that the US government decides to use to talk about tender age children, babies, you know, who nobody knew where the kids one to five were, where the girls were at that time. But that's how we talk about them as human beings. And it was a great lesson for me in, in, in being a journalist that, um, Look, could I have could I have faced consequences um, for going out there and saying what I felt? Yes, but I would never do it any other way. Um, I wanted to communicate as a father, as a reporter, as me, Jacob, but also with people who are watching having similar reactions. As I was, I wasn't telling people what to think, but I was being honest about what it was like to be there, because I don't think you could grasp fully the situation with a clinical description of well, there are chain link fences kind of like what you might see at a baseball backstop or a dog kennel. Um, the children were inside these cages. And, and incidentally, the Trump administration uh, decided to take those cages down after um, the separation policy. And today, they're plexiglass dividers. We can argue whether or not that's any better. My feeling is not necessarily. Um, and this, the current Secretary of Homeland Security says himself, those facilities, those Border Patrol stations are no place, no place for children. But, for me, it was about just connecting with what I was feeling and seeing and, and trusting that I would have the support, and I, and I was lucky enough to. Questions? Uh, we have one here. We'll take that one, and then to you, sir. Hey, Frank. 
So lucky that I'm here. I was not meant to be here. I was just getting salad, <laughs> and I stayed, and this is the most impactful thing I think I've heard all year. Thanks. Thank God for great journalism. Thank God for your courage. Thank you. My question is, how do you prevent this? We all know that this is an outrage, but we would not have known if you hadn't covered it. How do we make sure that this never happens again, and how do we hold the people accountable who did it? Do you have any specific ideas? Well, the pre number one, in terms of accountability, I think pressure on this current administration. Uh, the President Biden not only said to Kristen Welker, my colleague in the final presidential debate, that he, and it was a pivotal moment in the election with Donald Trump, you know, it was the issue of the final debate between Trump and Biden. And he said there were 545 kids who we knew remained separated at the time. Now we know that there's over 1,000. Um, he said it's criminal. It's criminal. My colleague Jeff Bennett, now at PBS, said to him, will there be an investigation of the policy when he was president-elect? He promised a thorough, thorough investigation. Uh, and his Justice Department, led by Merrick Garland, has not announced, um, and for all we know, initiated any type of investigation. And, and I think, honestly, it's on people like, like me to keep up the pressure, which is why I continue to report uh, on this issue, not out of some sense that there needs to be vengeance, but really accountability. I mean, that's what this is. Talk to any of the parents or the children who were separated, and they'll tell you that this was a trauma that they, that they will never be able to let go of. It's a policy that John Mitnick, the general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security, warned in a legal memo that I obtained and I put in the book, could very well be illegal on the grounds that it violates the, 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 the due process rights of all these families. And that's what Judge Dana Sabra in the Southern District of California ultimately ruled, that he ruled we're gonna reunite all of these families because what the Trump administration did, quote unquote, shocks the conscience. Um, and so what else can people do? People can continue to talk about this. People cannot conflate the separation of 5,600 children at the border by the Trump administration um, with the current situation at the border and policy decisions that the Biden administration needs to make. They should also remember that President Trump wanted to restart this policy and that should he run again, or should people who were in his Department of Homeland Security or his Justice Department, like Jeff Sessions or Gene Hamilton, who was the counselor to, to uh, Jeff Sessions at the time, um, these are policies that they drove. The, the DOJ's own IG report said they were the driving force behind the policy. And so we've got to remember their names. We've got to remember who was involved in the policy. And we have to ask them about it uh, at every turn because they did this deliberately. They knew what they were doing. They knew what the outcome would be, but they did it anyway. Thank you for your reporting. It's spectacular, and it needed to be said. As an attorney, you litigates against the civil division of justice. That is an issue that journalists have not covered because the civil division of justice is not deserving of the word justice. It is just dollars and cents, and they are protecting their own ass, and that's what it's all about. But my question, if I might, uh, is of the thousand kids that are still separated, uh, have you gone in depth to the recognize from the family perspective, are they abandoning these kids or are they, what, is there split families? And, no. and yeah, it's and a great you, question. Did you all, all hear that question about the, the thousand remaining kids and what's, what's amazing after on? all this time that we have st that still mm. that many kids out there? Yeah, and it's not because the parent, thank you for the question, um, it's not because the parents don't want to be reunited with their children. Whether I was as I said, in Haiti or Guatemala or Ukraine, 
No person on the move wants to leave behind their country. Every single one of them will tell you that. Ukrainians don't want to be in Poland right now or Romania or in Western Europe or in the United States where I saw many of them trying to cross the border in Mexico over the course of the last several months. They want to be at home and they want to be with their children and they don't want to leave what they know. Juan and Jose, for example, lived in Patan, Guatemala. They lived on a beautiful, almost like a ranch style house is how I would describe it after seeing pictures of it. Um, they have a family. They're with the rest of their family. The mother and the, children, the, the sisters are still there in Central America. I think it's two-pronged why the families haven't come back yet. One is, it, logistically, it's very complicated. Uh, the IOM, the Institute of Migration from the United Nations, is the one for the Biden administration that's trying to not only track down, um, but get these uh, folks humanitarian parole to come into the country and to arrange the travel for them to come into the country. They have to be found. Some of them live in remote villages and speak indigenous languages only. Um, they got to the United States only to be separated and presented forms in English and Spanish and not understand what they were signing. The second, uh, to the second question about, about the civil division, I've been, I knew nothing about PACER, I knew nothing about dockets, I didn't know any of this stuff before I covered this case. But I'm, I obsessively, to this day, check those cases to see what the federal government has said. I'm paraphrasing now, but what the Biden administration has said in federal court, on the record, in writing, is that in at least one of these federal tort cases, FTCA cases, to try to get restitution for the families, <laughs> there was no family separation policy as the plaintiffs have described it. It's, it's, um, it is mind-blowing to look at and to read, given the rhetoric of the president himself uh, on the issue. But as you said, they're fighting this uh, on the grounds that, they, they, just on Friday, they, tried, they filed a motion to dismiss another case. There's dozens of these cases brought by lawyers on behalf of all these families, most of the time pro bono on behalf of the families. But the government says, right now they're arguing the policy as described doesn't exist, but what the lawyers are arguing is this was intentional. And the evidence exists, it exists in my book, it exists in the evidence that they're uh, putting out for the first time on the docket, uh, that they knew what they were doing and they did it on purpose. Matt Albens, who was one of the senior leaders at ICE, this was just revealed a couple weeks ago, wrote in an email, and again, it's a paraphrase, but something to the effect of, once the families were starting to be reunited at the height of the policy, uh, next week, four years ago, um, they were being reunited too quickly, and it went against, essentially, what they were trying to do in terms of sending a message by the administration. Um, so, so, you know, I don't know what DOJ is doing, um, other than uh, basically sending out a contradictory message to what their colleagues in Homeland Security are doing in, in, in their efforts to reunite these families. I know we have one here, and then we'll move here. But just quickly, where are these thousand kids? Who are Ma still most of them world? are in the United States, uh, and in fact, all of them, with their families, all spread throughout the country. So, uh, as like far as I know, foster families. Or? Most of them have families, and, and so okay. what, what I learned about the the immigration process is most families that come to the U.S. are coming here because they have other families. Stephen so Miller would like to call family, it chain migration, but what they're doing is leaving desperate situations, driven by poverty, food insecurity, gang violence, uh, persecution, climate change. In many instances, now I've been to. Uh, the highlands of Guatemala, Los Sopas, a small village where people had to leave because there's no food to eat the, because of the climate variability and food insecurity. They can't, they literally have no, they're starving. And so many of these families go on the move to try to find their people they know to be able to survive. And that's what it comes down to. Yes, sir. Thank you so much uh, for all that you're doing in this really important issue, Jacob. It's, it's, uh, it's terrific to see and so very important. I just want to ask, um, not for names, but do you get a sense of those people that were protagonists um, in, in bringing this uh, dreadful policy into place and enacting it that there is any sense of regret? 
I think that there's a gradient amongst people who have been, it's a good question, thank you, who have been involved in the policy. Kevin McAleenan, very famously, who became Acting Secretary of Homeland Security um, after Kirsten Nielsen resigned, gave a 60 Minutes interview where I think he said, uh, effectively, I wouldn't do it again that way. Uh, it didn't turn out the way that we had thought it was going to happen. Um, but take that for what it is. It's a public official uh, after um, the policy had been stopped by a federal court um, walking back what had happened because of the spectacular disaster that they had been warned it was going to become. Uh, and I think, you know, there are people who we haven't heard a lot from yet. Alex Azar was the head of HHS during this and during COVID. Uh, he hasn't been asked about this directly in many of the appearances. Nielsen has asked about it all the time. And what she says is, I just had to uphold the law. Attorney General Sessions put forward the zero tolerance policy, and I had no choice but to refer these families. But she, read in the book, she signed a decision memo on May 4th, 2018 that said, we are going to send these families to the DOJ in order to separate them. And without her signature on that paper, those children wouldn't have been sent to the Justice Department and been separated by uh, the Trump administration, at least not in the numbers that, that they were. So no, I wouldn't say that there's been some kind of profound regret uh, about the policy uh, publicly, because this is exactly what they wanted to do. Yes, sir. Hi, Jake. Hi. Uh, I'd like to ask a question. Are there, <clears throat> are there any not-for-profits that are out there helping these families? And if so, who's, who's doing a good job? Kids in Need of Defense uh, kind uh, is, along with Al Otro Lado, uh, a service provider down on the border, the Women's Refugee Center, um, and a host of others are part of basically the task force. They call it the steering committee uh, in order to try to track down and find, because they have the staff that's expert in, in providing aid to what historically had been unaccompanied children coming. Um, so I would say in terms of scale, uh, kids in need of defense, and their whole mission is to make sure uh, that no child uh, goes through the immigration system in the U.S. without legal representation. Because believe it or not, that's a possibility. And you'll remember, I read about in the book, Lindsay Tislowski from the Immigrant Defenders Law Center told me at the height of the policy, she had seen, I think it was a two or a three-year-old client brought into immigration court after being separated, feet couldn't touch the floor, and made to answer questions from an immigration judge. Almost absurd when you hear it. Um, and so it's not guaranteed. So I direct you to KIND, to WRC, uh, to Alotro Lado, and you'll probably find more there as well. Thank you. Uh, one right here. Hi. Um, I have two questions, Jacob. But <clears throat> first, I'd just like to say um, this, this really hits home for me uh, based on family history, family composition. I have a 10-year-old daughter who's Mexican-American. Um, I felt nervous and anxious all morning and considered not coming to this, but... Um, thank you for being here. Yeah, I came, and I just want to say th not only thank you for the work you did, but it, um, I went to the session in this very room yesterday called 10 Things Every American Should Know, and I think this really does seem... I mean, I haven't read the book, but given what you're talking about, this really does seem like it should become some sort of required reading for us as a culture going forward. Um, so thank you for that, and I hope that this can get really widely disseminated. Thanks. Yeah, and my two questions, one is, I think you kind of just answered one, but one is, um, what was the youngest age of children that were affected under Zero. this policy? Zero, breastfeeding babies. Yeah, um, 
And two, uh, what is the Biden administration's stated reason for fighting restitution? They don't have a good one, in my opinion. Um, they say that they don't, they didn't, they were at the table in what's known as a global settlement agreement, uh, essentially a class action lawsuit against the government, and they could have settled with all these families. It was leaked by someone, we don't know whom, to the Wall Street Journal that $450,000 was a number under consideration. Uh, and the president was asked about it by Peter Ducey from Fox News in the White House briefing room. And it was, uh, it was an inconsistent answer at best. I think, I, I don't know that he heard or understood the question, but he said off the bat, we're not gonna do that. Then later when he was asked about it again, he said, no, we're definitely gonna make a settlement with these families. Uh, and after he said that, uh, the administration walked away from the table and uh, said, we're gonna fight each of these cases uh, in court. I don't know if it was because they felt like the number was too high, that they felt like there were, the merits of the case weren't there for the families. Um, but the bottom line is uh, what the activists say, what the attorneys will say for the children is they turn their back on the children they have claimed to support with one hand, and on the other hand, they're trying to bring back the families in order to put all these families back together. We have time for one more. I have one, unless I see a hand. Yes, sir. Thank you, this has been great. I'm gonna just zoom out for a minute and ask a question because you, you said that, um, that this shocks the conscience. And I, I guess what I'm thinking is we're in a, we're in a whole new world where, where the, we saw the Trump administration do things that we w would previously never imagine would be done. And, and what, what concerns me is that I'm not sure it does shock the, 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 the conscience. I'm not sure that, um, that I think we're in a new place where, um, so I, my, my, my question is to you is, is why? Why does something like this not, number one, get directly tagged onto Donald Trump and be part of his legacy? And why doesn't it shock our conscience and, and, and shake us as a country? And I guess the, the, the question I have is, do you think it's the public has changed? Do you think that we have shifted as a people? Do you think it's media? Or do you think the term used is verbal gymnastics? Do you think that, that administrations like Trump are, are just so much better at, at, a, at maneuvering through this so that it confuses us and we don't understand what's going it's on? A, it's a, I'll give you the one word answer and then I'll give you a little bit longer answer. Uh, deterrence. Deterrence has been the official government policy uh, of the United States in Democratic and Republican administrations for decades. Uh, in the modern era, starting with Bill Clinton, who built the first wave of walls, uh, George W. Bush exponentially increased the size of the Border Patrol after Homeland Security was created in the wake of 9-11, uh, created something called Operation Streamline, where they could just deport um, scores of people at, at one time. Barack Obama deported more people than any president in the history of the United States, We're using interior removals, ICE raids, and people uh, at the southwest border. And because the system had been set up to deter, to punish by definition, to scare people away from coming to the country with result, catastrophic results, I might add, the number, uh, as the number of people coming to the U.S. declined, the number of people dying trying to get here continued to rise or stay even, um, which is just, that's the immigration system in a nutshell. And why Donald Trump could separate like this, because the system was already in place to deter. And so the Biden administration has promised, and these are their words, not mine, a fair, safe, humane, and orderly immigration system. 
But that's not what we've seen in Del Rio, Texas, with thousands of Haitian migrants picked up and deported in a blitz uh, that set records that this country had never seen before. What I hope is this conversation continues and that they mean what they say about a fair, safe, humane, and orderly uh, immigration system. I agree. I think today it may not shock the conscious any longer. I think the conversation is so convoluted. Um, it, by the way, in no small part because of the news media that cling to headlines about surges and waves and you name it, uh, that maybe only with hindsight, with history, that we'll see this as what it was, one of the most ignoble, horrendous chapters of American history in line, perhaps, to deliberately separate and torture children with Native American genocide and slavery and Japanese internment. How are we going to remember family separations? You know, and I think that'll be, that'll be telling about whether or not this shocks the conscience uh, in the future. But sadly, I think you're right about today. Well, I think that's a good place to land and kind of go out into our, the rest of this beautiful day and reflect. I personally hope our capacity for outrage has not been exhausted. Me too. And I think it's one of the really important things that you do in this book and you've done in your reporting is we can sit and argue about policy and what the objectives are and there is no easy answer to any of this, but you can look at a 10-year-old kid sleeping in an overcrowded room in a Walmart in Brownsville, Texas, who can't reach their parents. And I don't know what else you can say, but that's wrong. Yeah. And we need to fight it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And thanks Thank to all you. of you. Thank you. Jacob Soboroff is a correspondent and anchor at MSNBC. He's covered immigration policies from the U.S.-Mexico border and climate change from above the Arctic Circle, along with many other topics. He's the author of Separated, Inside an American Tragedy, and the recipient of the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Television Political Journalism. Mary Louise Kelly is co-host of All Things Considered, NPR's evening news magazine. She was previously a national security correspondent for NPR News, reporting on the CIA, the NSA, and other spy agencies, terrorism, wars, and rising nuclear powers. We invite you to experience the Aspen Ideas Festival in person this June. Get your pass today at aspenideas.org. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.